Welcome to the 24th episode of Quarantined Market Podcast, where some academics get together in our current historical moment and discuss particular keywords and how they might relate to the present situation. The keyword for today is ecosophia or ecosophy, but I suppose we're going to approach it more generally from the perspective of ecology at first. And uh, as guest today, we have Eric Arnold. Eric is a professor of consumer research in Aalto University School of Business. And Eric is also one half of the team who came up with the discourse that we nowadays know, know as consumer culture theory. Eric, of course, has published broadly on issues of value, on ecology, and also on different ways of how market assemblages come into being, among other things. And of course, Eric takes a very anthropological view into consumer phenomena. And uh, today, I suppose we're going to extend that discussion to the idea of ecology, ecosophia, and alternative ways of thinking about the human relationship with the environment or what in a modernist sense would be known as nature versus the human. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, welcome welcome back to you guys. It's really nice to have a chance to talk talk with you, Alan, and with you, uh, Yoel, and uh, to uh, have a chance to share some ideas and thoughts with our broader community of discourse and hopefully stimulate some some feedback that so when approaching the idea, so if we first uh, approach it from the notion of ecology and then move on to discuss uh, the matter from, I guess, from the perspective of different ontologies, different ways of approaching the whole idea, what do you think would be a good way to start? That, that, that's a good question of where to start. I can tell you a little bit about the kinds of things I've been reading to try to rethink or to think differently about what you just called ecology or what you also called e- ecosophy. Um, so I've been reading uh, a whole bunch of literature that's come out in the last years, particularly from researchers in, in the anthropology of Amazonia, but also some from Melanesia and New Guinea about uh, people's relationship with what we modernists call call nature, and this has sort of led to a what's called a kind of a an on, a new ontography of the human uh, relationship to the biome. I've also gone gone and and had a look at, and here I do, I'm at a bit of a loss for a, a categorization. Anna Singh's work and Donna Haraway's work has been something I've been getting getting back to. And uh, I also was di- dipping into the work on ecological economics and the work on ecosystem services, which is a way that uh, uh, some have tried to sell, and I do mean sell, the value of ecosystems preservation to uh, sort of the Davos crowd of policymakers and and movers and shakers. So uh, I've been reading a lot of these kinds of things, trying to think about how to think about nature, so to speak. And also at the same time, because I work in 
a business school, or I've been working in marketing for a long time, also trying to put that together with the literature on green marketing and green consumerism and all that sort of thing, which again is sort of a way in which marketing as an apparatus and as a discipline has been dealing with nature or with ecology in a sense. So those are sort of the sort of the raw materials that I've been assembling to think about this issue that you raised. And of course, when you talk, when you mention ecosophy, of course you're referring to the to the interesting short text by uh, Felix Watari from uh, the late late 1980s, which uh, when I read it, I was dumbfounded to see how much resonance there was with the work of another of my of my intellectual heroes, Marcel Mauss. Which maybe some might find surprising, but uh, the uh, the evident relationship in, between the thinking of those two scholars, separated by 75 years of social science thought is was quite apparent to me in any case. So you mentioned um, that you've been checking out how marketing has dealt with these issues. So what have you found in the literature? How has marketing been dealing as a discipline with these ideas? Well, I think you can see uh, quite a bit of disciplinary anxiety about the uh, role of profligate uh, consumerism and the globalization of marketization and commodification of of everything, uh, a bit of disciplinary anxiety about the implications of this discourse and this mode of mode of economic action, uh, and the consequences of that for for planetary biome. But of course. I don't know, of course, but but what we see is how does it manifest itself in marketing? What we see basically is a marketing managerial approach with iterations of green marketing or sustainable marketing, and on the other side, various iterations of green green consumerism. And, and on the one side, on the marketing management side, there is there are two things I guess one sees. One is if we take it uh, in a sort of a sincere register, some companies trying to render their practices less toxic for the planet, and on the other side, trying to induce consumers to purchase using all of the typical apparatus of of marketing to purchase these these products with various kinds of labels designed to imply that they are somehow indeed less toxic for the planet. Then on the consumer side, we see sort of the mirror image of that. We see one, two kinds of things. One is research trying to figure out, again, how to, how to get consumers to purchase environmentally friendly products. And on the other side, sort of clearly, and I think you guys have also written about this, particularly perhaps Alan, sort of, yes, Alan and, and Detlev Zwick have written about this sort of moral hand-wringing about, oh, if only people would understand why they need to consume and such, reduce their consumption or simplify their consumption or only consume what they need, and in quotes there, in order to uh, reduce the impact on the planet. So all of this 
discourse and marketing clearly reflects, as I said, kind of an anxiety, but not much of a real uh, progress towards, I guess, the ideals of a more benign, more benign, environmentally benign marketing apparatus. So the the discussion has become more sophisticated than it was perhaps 30 years ago when the discussion began, but I wouldn't say it's become more, much more reflexive or much more effective in achieving the ostensible goals. Alan probably has something to say about in response to that, as he's done some thinking about this as well. Well, I'd like to ask you, Eric, uh, looking at this issue of ecosophy, it is one of the points to try and move away from a Cartesian nature society dualism. And if so, are there any particular pitfalls with thinking in that Cartesian way that, that are, are undermine uh, eco- ecological good intentions? Yeah, well, that's that the, the, the ecosophy notion, the interesting argument to me and the argument in Watari's text, the one that uh, links... Uh, directly to, to Marcel Mauss's thought. And interestingly enough, there's also a connection to, to some things that Freud had to say about, about these issues. To address the issue of the anthropoic impact on the biome, we would have to imagine a radical rethinking of, uh, as, as Watari says, of the economy of how we imagine society, how we even imagine what society society is, and also imagine subjectivity. In other words, what it means to be a, a person. So the West and Western, the Western tradition of thought, you mentioned uh, Descartes, but uh, Descartes is just, uh, I guess, uh, an important landmark along the way. The, what we sometimes call the West or Western philosophical thinking has, uh, at least since the Enlightenment, emphasized this rigid binary between the natural, this nature and culture. And uh, this is something that Watari calls into question from his position as a, as a, as a Westerner, as a psychoanalyst, and as a, as a social critic. And that critique uh, begs for some grist, some material. Okay, how can we how can we do that? How can we do what Watari invites us to do? How can we reimagine and rethink? And that then is the entree into this work uh, that has been uh, revitalizing thought in anthropology, leading towards this sort of new ontography and. Uh, here, I, I would evoke the work of uh, uh, Philippe Descola and a bunch of the uh, North American anthropologists who have, over the last 20 years, working with hunting and gathering peoples, foraging peoples, particularly in the Amazon region, but also not neglecting the, uh, the Inuit and uh, hunting and foraging peoples in the uh, circumpolar region, started to rethink or to take seriously the approach to the human relationship to the biome that can be found in those kinds of those kinds of societies 
as a way to think past this nature-culture divide, and the, not only a divide, but a hierarchical divide, as in all binaries, one is always the favored term. So culture is the favored term in the nature-culture binary, putting, of course, humans as the subject of action and nature as the object of, of action and reflection. This has led me, in reading that work and in thinking about this, uh, this issue, thinking about the clear-cut, I would even say dead end, that uh, so-called green marketing has come to and green consumerism, is that what's required is an ecosophical reflection about how to think past the entire ontology and epistemology that undergirds Western philosophy and Western economy and Western society. When approached in this fashion, uh, it would seem to me that many terms that we take rather for granted, very naturalized terms, need to be reconsidered. Some of the ones I noted here would be nature itself, species, kinship, and the idea of a person. So how do you think would be the best way to start denaturalizing some of these notions to erect a new idea of ecological or ecosophic thinking? So it proves useful to think carefully with people in these kinds of uh, hunting and gathering and foraging communities who live in a relatively un mediated contact with the biomes in which they operate. Our, our sign economy, our, which is an evolution from a semiotic economy, is totally divorced from or highly divorced from or extremely divorced from a relationship to nature. Nature is just not part of the game, so to speak. So what we find when we look and talk with and try to learn with and from people who live in these kinds of communities is that the idea of nature is not present. It's not a concept. It doesn't exist as a concept. Um, instead, what we find is that people find themselves in a variety of communicative relationships with the world around them, both uh, holistically and particularly. And so if we wanted to anchor ourselves on a contemporary social theorist, some guidance there, you might, one might think about the work of a Lumen who had a kind of communicative theory of, of society. Well, in any case, in these kind of hunting and gathering communities, we see an animist worldview. And the animist worldview is one in which there is a recognition of diversity of appearances or diversity of materials, but living things are attributed a kind of a uniformity of interiority. By that, I mean that because uh, an understanding of the world around them is so critical to their surviving and flourishing, because the environment, particularly in the tropical environment, is a very, in some ways, a very rich one and invites a very uh, detailed and nuanced understanding of it. People have a, a highly uh, 
particularized and variegated experience of the communicative others in their environment. And so some of these communicative others are treated as communities of other persons. This is often the case with uh, animal animals who uh, hunters and gatherers rely on as game. But it can also be the case of living plants that are, may be cultivated to some degree and through relatively simple horticultural practices who are also attributed with some kind of selfhood or personhood. So in short, in, in these kind of communities, the notion of personhood is uh, divisible and relational and uh, distributed. So uh, sometimes we find that uh, kinds of categories that people make in order to order the world, the categories may include some groups of humans, some groups of animals, some groups of plants, and exclude other groups of humans, animals, and plants. So the categories cross-cut what we in the West would kind of would think of as naturalized categories. Moreover, the idea of personhood and subjectivity is also much more, again, and this is something that Newman would understand, it's more relational and situational. So personhood is not something that one has as a possession, like we might think of in the West, oh, I have an identity. No, no, identity is something that is constantly a becoming. And that becoming is realized through acts of communication. So the biome, the living world of the hunter and gatherer, is a world full of acting beings who are in communication with one another. Another interesting aspect of this, and then I'll stop and let you intervene, is that one of the points that uh, Eduardo Kahn makes in his amazing book called How Forests Think is that uh, people operating in these kind of environments are very attuned not only to semiotic communications, that is, linguistic communications, but also to indexical and iconic modes of communication, which are the modes of communication that are more characteristic of uh, other living creatures. Plants and animals communicate through indexical and iconic signs more than through semiotic semiotic signs. So people in these communities are also more attuned to both emitting and interpreting indexical and iconic signs. Eric, I'd like to ask you about how you'd want to conceptualize the specific form of capitalist uh, accumulation itself at this point. Uh, so one book that's been quite influential to, to the way I approach these questions is uh, Jason Moore's book on capitalism in the web of life. And one of the arguments that he makes, which to my mind is, is a really useful argument, is that we can define capitalism through its uh, unpaid, as a system of unpaid externalities. So for example, capitalism never pays for the labor of animals or slaves or typically the reproductive and domestic work of women. Uh, and in the same case, it's never had to pay for the nature that it exploits all the time. 
But if we were to imagine a value system whereby capitalism would have to pay for the bounty of nature that it claims, the capitalism wouldn't function itself. So for this reason and others, uh, more tends to, towards the term capitalocene rather than anthropocene. Do you think it's useful to, to emphasize capital in this way? Or are you keen to have a, a more general um, anthropos at the heart of this? No, thank you very much for bringing uh, bringing uh, my attention to that to that text with which I am unfamiliar, and I think it's quite right to he uh, he's quite right to uh, to use that rather uh, uh, awkward uh, neologism capitalocene uh, rather than the anthropocene because anthropocene there's a way in which that's a universalizing and a foundationalist sort of sort of position, arguing that human beings only operate in one way relative to the, the natural world. And uh, you're quite right, uh, Alan, it's capitalism that operates in the way that you specified. And indeed, one of the cruxes of the matter is the uh, exchange relationships that characterize a capitalist economy. So as you well, very well know, you have forms of uh, primitive accumulation, as it's so sometimes termed, basically means taking from what is assumed to be inert, inactive, or obdurate materiality for the purposes of capital. And then uh, the secondly, the extraction of exchange value or surplus value through various practices of unequal exchange between various groups of, of human beings. And then again, uh, I don't know if there's a Marxist term for, for this or not, the sort of spewing of pollution and pollutants back into the biome. I think the crux of the matter there is, and again, it's interesting if we return to the capital that Marx uh, focused, uh, capital focuses precisely on problem of exchange in capital and the problems associated with the exchange system in all its manifold uh, dimensions in capital. So as far as I know, I'm with, I'm with you on that page. The central problem is a monstrous uh, system and structure and institutional organization of exchange, which as it is pretty clear, is not sustainable from a biological perspective indefinitely. So a lot of these ways of thinking, trying to think outside of the traditional modernist worldview of nature as an inert object to be utilized, exchanged, turned into products and commodities. So trying to think about it in these new ways, such as would be the deep ecological perspective, it always involves a sort of preoccupation with critiquing this, what we have already termed the anthropocentric or the anthropocene that denotes a human existence where humans have now become, uh, through the functions of capitalism, into the position where they can actually alter and have altered the fate of the planet, so to speak. Uh, now we have the global crisis of the COVID uh, virus. There is a lot of talk about how this is just the very light foreshadowing of the actual crisis of ecological destruction and climate change that is going to hit us soon as well. So how should we start anticipating our capability to respond 
or even understand or think about the impending climate change a catastrophe. If we take a lesson from, and of course there are many lessons to be taken, but if we were to take some lessons from what ecologists call climax ecosystems, and there has been critique of that term, of which I, I'm well aware, but, but if we take something like the tropical rainforests of the Amazon or the Congo or Indonesian archipelago, or if we take the, a, a similar example from the ocean and think about a, 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 coral, a coral reef, when we look at those types of ecosystems, climax ecosystems, what, what we see is dynamic balance. That is, there are, within the system, there are very few catastrophe, catastrophic changes. There are evolutionary changes, there are ebbs and flows of, of various populations. But in both cases, the case of the coral reef or the case of the rainforest, the vast bulk of the, the living and non-living resources which sustain those systems are internal to those systems. So they're relatively self-contained. So if we take something like the COVID, the COVID virus this, this year or SARS before that or various others of these uh, pandemic events, in some ways those are not dissimilar from the increasing intensity of uh, hurricanes or tornadoes or snowstorms or, or what have you, they're all, all are evidence of imbalances of the flow of resources, so to speak, or the flow of materials in the planetary ecosystem. Why would COVID or SARS break out, so to speak, in this way? Well, you know, viruses and bacteria are, are opportunistic organisms like other organisms. It's not that, again, COVID and SARS and things like that are actually not much different than uh, the recent outbreak of uh, murder hornets in the Pacific Northwest of the United States or the spread of all kinds of quote-unquote invasive species. These are simply evidences of more or less dramatic imbalances in the flows of resources the flows of information uh, around around the planet. So to the extent that uh, we, we human beings increasingly uh, through our, our economic activity throw into dis disarray or, or subtract actors in the global biome through uh, mass uh, extinctions, we can only expect these kinds of catastrophic events through to proliferate. And so uh, rejoining uh, some remarks that our colleague Craig Thompson made in an earlier podcast, you can only imagine that risk society and that the uh, experience of risk as a, as a feature of, of life will, will increase. We require whether we can achieve it or not, we human beings can achieve it or not. If we are driven to extinction, nature will surely cover, but unless we uh, identify new ways of communicating with 
and transacting with other beings in the in the biome, um, unless we can do that, uh, there there isn't a reformist approach that will solve the problem. That is, I don't believe that there is a reformist capitalism, uh, sustainable capitalism that can resolve these critical these critical problems. Eric, I'd like to ask you a question about how ecosophical thinking requires us to reimagine uh, subjectivity. And I would like to know then, what of the subject of the consumer themselves? Uh, do you see some possibility of the consumer to uh, exercise some useful agency, um, as, as has been argued by some of our colleagues in, in marketing? Do you think that we need to abolish this subjectivity of the consumer? What, what, what are we to do with it? Well, as you you know as well as I as I do, Alan and and Uel, that the consumer is a is a binary pair with the producer is clearly a sort of a nineteenth century construct. It doesn't take much to see that what gets called consumption these days includes such a vast array of things that it's really quite a hodgepodge of a category itself. Uh, that being said. Uh, the consumer as a subject, okay? So the consumer is, is, is conceived of as a, generally in our popular perception of ourselves, our lay perception of ourselves is as, as persons who, as individuals who have, who possess certain qualities, who control certain resources. Well, this, this type of individuality and this type of subjectivity is completely antithetical to the kinds of subjectivities that we see amongst kinds of uh, hunting and gathering people, peoples that I was talking about earlier. As uh, Marcel Mauss wrote about way back in 1938 in an essay on the concept of the self, or the concept of the person, the concept of the self, this is a relatively odd conception of personhood, and it's one that's deeply tied to the, the logic of, of, of capitalism. I think as we know, the logic of capitalism requires the choice-making individual to uh, keep, th- keep, th- keep things running. But in the kind of uh, animist ontologies that I've been reading about and thinking about, there, again, as I said before, personhood or subjectivity is uh, contingent Relation always contingent, always relational, often uh, highly particular. So, going back to your second part, do I think that the consumer agent has a role to play? Well, I think people have a role to play, but if they if the role they play is as consumers, then I think that the role that they can play in addressing or solving or even comprehending. The, the crisis of nature that we confront is very, very limited. I think what's required is an entirely different, as I said before, approach to a different way of interacting with with other beings. And I, again, I, as I say, I think it requires a much more distributed sense of, of, of personhood to other living things with whom we are in a uh, meaningful relationship. I, I, I had occasion to joke to some executives at Valio, the Finnish dairy cooperative, some 
some months ago that they ought to start treating their their cows as business partners rather than as production units, which they thought was funny, but I was actually kind of serious. But I think we need we capitalism, as you said before, uh, Alan, uh, engages in these externalization of value extraction. That's not a communicative relationship. That's a sort of what Marshall Solins would call a negative reciprocity, denial of the existence of any sort of um, moral standing of other things, a more relational, situational, and uh, dispersed sense of agency, personhood, selfhood, and a, as uh, a Philippe Descola would put it, a more uh, a turn to a uh, set of more transitive rather than intransitive or extractive or negative exchange relationships would be required to restore some sort of balance to the human part of the economy, at least. Now, a, a famous quotation, which was something that reportedly a man in the bar said to Frederick Jameson once, is that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than to imagine the end of capitalism. Do, do you think that you can see a way out of this mess? I think that we can imagine an alternative. This is the kind of thing I'm trying to struggle struggle with at this point. I think we can imagine an alternative, but what I think is very difficult is to imagine how we would get to that alternative because of the institutional, technological, infrastructural obstacles to such a solution. But uh, as, as, I, as, as I said before, I think, I, mean, I think if we look to our human past and look to it not with the eye of, from a modernist perspective, which assumes that uh, thanks to some changes in attitude in the relatively recent historical past, humanity has made all sorts of progressive advances in understanding quality of life, uh, blah, blah, blah. If we would abandon that deeply ingrained modernist progressive worldview and look to our, even to our human past, we can see that for a long stretches of human history, people lived well and lived in a more balanced reciprocal relationship with the other critters, as Donna Haraway puts it, in, in nature. And in particular through, as I said before, what Descola calls these transitive relationships, these more reciprocal exchange relationships. And let's remember, when we think about human history, that things like domestication of animals or the domestication of cereals, crops, and other things all took place well before, well before what we would call today a scientific understanding of the natural world. Instead, they had a quite different understanding of, again, a more communicative relationship with the world the, the other critters in the world around them. So what I'm trying to work on now is trying to trying to work from these ontographic principles and this idea of an ecosophy to try and think about, at least think about exchange and circulation, which is exactly what, again, what Marx focused on in trying to think about how capitalism worked and how it might end. Uh, Eric? 
for preparation uh, for this podcast, you sent me a very interesting book called Cannibal Metaphysics by Viveros de Castro. And uh, the book, of course, is an anthropological, philosophical critique of the subject-object relationship by invoking the notion of the cannibal. But I couldn't help. I understand this has nothing to do with the book, but I couldn't help thinking when I was uh, checking out some of the part, uh, passages in that book that isn't consumer culture already a sort of individualist cannibalism in its own right, in the sense where the consumer constantly devours themselves in a libidinal enjoyment. And also, uh, from a critical view, uh, there is also this cannibalism in the sense that it's a ruthless competition to consume more, with more status, with more prestation. So how could we bring this sort of cannibalist to more of this ecosophical idea of the cannibalist that Viveros Castro was talking about? Is it, is, it, is it something like what Baudrillard would have said, that in the end even signs must burn, even the sign value of consumption must burn before, uh, before there is another actualizable alternative? I actually think that, that that remark by Baudrillard, you never know whether he meant himself seriously or not. I would read that to say uh, that we, we need to think about moving away from, that is, I go back to my point before about um, systems of communication that are that are also based on other bo- other modes of communication that are indexical or iconic. I recently came across a wonderful little a little uh, factoid, a little a little article from from Science, in which uh, scientists had discovered that hungry bumblebees will chew the leaves of their favored. Uh, flowering plants, which are not currently in flower, and through some subtle communicative mechanism, perhaps conveyed through their saliva, this this chewing and this nibbling on these plants induces the plants to flower precociously, thus feeding, and what's interesting about this is it often doesn't feed those bumblebees who are chewing because bumblebees don't live very long, but it feeds the next generation of bumblebees, which is a really interesting thing to ponder. So the bumblebee, the flowering plants, are in a communicative relationship, but it is not a semiotic one. It's not, a, it's not an arbitrary sign relationship. It's a either, again, I don't know, it's probably an iconic relationship, but the point is that the biome around us constantly in communication. This is the point of uh, Singh's book about uh, about the Musutaki mushroom, which is the haifa, the Musutaki mushroom, are in a uh, symbiotic or a mutually predatory relationship with uh, certain species of pine trees that, uh, whose roots they require on which to grow via exchanges of nutrients. So that's part of one part of the answer. So yes, I agree with Baudrillard. We have to break with sign value. We have to get back to a more communicative relationship with the biome that's less mediated by the sign. But the other part, back to the cannibalist point, in cannibalism in kinds of societies I talked, I have been reading about, is an interesting practice because it's uh, related to other practices which seem dissimilar, but which are in fact related. So 
cannibalism can be thought of as an example of what Descolat calls opticis of predation. And in these kinds of communities, predation is a, relation, is a reciprocal relationship that recognizes that different, different beings and different categories of being require some of the substance of the other being to constitute their personhood. So this idea gives rise to the extremely widely reported and widespread practice of hunters uh, giving offerings to uh, prey animals and engaging in all sorts of ritual preparations before they engage in hunting. And if they are successful in hunting, also engaging in various kinds of prestatory acts to thank the animal or some spirit of the animals for their success in hunting. So in animalist communities, we see ritual cannibalism often of two types. One would be partial consumption of enemies taken in uh, ritual combat. And what that kind of cannibalism seems to be a practice of is a practice through which people constitute themselves as subjects and their enemies as other. So it's an identitary practice. Uh, it's a social practice, a sociological practice of social identification. The, the other kind of ritual cannibalism that you see there is a mortuary practice where bones or brains of deceased uh, uh, kinsfolk are consumed in a ritual fashion. And again, the idea here is that some of the uh, substance of that person, the ancestor now, is transferred to the living person and in the future will be transferred to that person's progeny, to their future offspring. So again, it's a reproductive practice of social sociality. In this case, it, uh, it, it produces a line a lineage so predation, the consumption of game animals, the presumption, the consumption of enemies, uh, and the consumption of ancestors, rather than thought of as cannibalism, should be thought of as reciprocal acts of predation, because people also recognize people recognize that animals may consume them. So people recognize that they too, such communities, are prey animals. So among the Inuit, they recognize they might be consumed by polar bears. In the Amazon, people can recognize that they might be consumed by jaguars. So cannibalism, at least in these kind of communities, is a, a subset of reciprocal predation. Cannibalism you're talking about uh, is nothing more than an extreme form of the extractive I guess, an internalization of the psychosis of capitalism it depends on this engorgement with uh, uh, resources from nature for its constitution as an acting subject. So that kind of cannibalism, which constantly reenacts, ritualizes non-subjectivity of other things is a kind of, you know, it's, it's a, an apotheosis of of what capitalism is and does as a system. So, well, let me say in, in conclusion that I, that I, I invite people to, uh, to read uh, Anand Singh's book, uh, 
the mushroom at the end of the world, in which she describes on a small scale a, a system of exchange involving this Matsutake mushroom that prioritizes the kind of transitive relationships between living beings that Descola abstracts from the kinds of ontologies that uh, Castros and Descola, Kohn and others have described in Amazonia. And in specific, this relationship of predation, gift giving, the, the gift economy in the Mausian sense and uh, exchange in a particularly anthropological sense. So that's a good point of entree into thinking about, in response to Alan's question, thinking about an alternative in the ruins, both economic and ecological, of, of, the, cap, of the capitalist economy. That's a nice starting point. And then I would encourage people also to, to have a stab at uh, Philippe Descola's book, Beyond Nature and Culture, which I think is essential in trying to think outside the prison house of Western philosophical thought that undergirds uh, uh, our current economic and political economic economic system. So thanks very much for this opportunity to chat with you guys today. And I hope, uh, hope this was interesting and helpful. It was certainly helpful and fun and interesting to me. Oh. Hey, thank you, Eric. It was great. Thanks very much, Eric, for joining us. Bye-bye. Uh,